So what are we talking about today? John Wesley. Who was John Wesley? That's the question for today. I don't think the majority of people probably know more than just the name. Wouldn't you reckon? I would reckon that. And this is good because in a way it um, is kind of a continuation of doing church history stuff. Yeah, that's true. Um, but it's in a different way because it's focusing on a specific individual in church history and kind of his contribution. So I guess the introductory overview would be to say that John Wesley is most known as the founder of Methodism. And he's a practical theologian from the 18th century whose theology has deeply influenced all of Christianity, especially American Christianity. Um, so I'd say that's the, the first thing to know about him is that anything else just as a big overview? No, that's good. I think that's most people with what's like the main point of who he is. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say the term practical theologian means like your thoughts about God and the Bible are all like really oriented on how you live. Mm. It's connected to how you live. It's not just like ideas or like systems of theology. It's less philosophical and more practical, I guess. Yeah, essentially you have systematic theology and practical theology. But surely there's some crossover between those, right? Because what's the point of writing about the nature of what God is if it doesn't... Well, I mean, I guess it is a topic of great interest, but besides that, isn't... I guess uh, maybe it just is because I come from more of that practical theology background, but eventually you're going to come to the point of, okay, so so what, kind of... <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I think all systematic theologians do it for practical purposes. The distinction that I see is that Wesley never wrote, this is what I believe about God. We just get what he believed from the work he was doing, primarily his sermons. Okay. So you look at his ministry to discern what he believed. Wouldn't you say, Joel? Yeah, I think so. And then, I mean, I do think there's a level of... Um, like theology that people really just get into the, like we want to understand. Like the goal is to understand it to make sense of God and the way things work. So because of that practical nature of John Wesley, I was thinking today we could primarily look at his life um, because a lot of what he believed and the his theology that became so prominent came from experiences that he had in his journey. So... What do you say just today we kind of walk through who he was, what are some of the main focuses of his life, and then maybe in a future episode we can get into the specifics of his theology. Yeah, sounds good. As we've been doing this podcast, we're focusing on these classes Paul's in. And so at, at Asbury Theological Seminary, everyone's right. required to take a class on the theology of John Wesley. And so John Wesley is going to be kind of the, like Paul said, the founder of the Methodist movement. That's also going to include like any Wesleyan church named after John Wesley. So there's some churches that are called Wesleyan churches, any church that has Methodist in the name or Nazarene. And then a lot of the like holiness movement came out of that. So that's going to be churches that are called like holiness churches or even like the Pentecostal movement came out of the Methodist and Wesleyan churches. So that's like one more removed. The immediate churches are going to be those Nazarene Wesleyan Methodist churches. And then the removed churches are going to be the uh, Pentecostal holiness churches. But that's just so you know, kind of the churches that came out of his influence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you're a Christian in America, you've almost certainly been influenced 
by the life of John Wesley, one way or another. Is there anything else when you think of who Wesley was that needs to be said before we get into going through his life? There's a lot that comes to mind for me. <laughs> yeah. What do you know, Daniel? Well, he went to Georgia to save the Indians, but who will save him? <laughs> <laughs> I I watched a very low budget movie on Amazon Prime about his time in Georgia. Oh, neat. Before. I know that his brother Charles is a hymn writer who writes a lot of good hymns for the holidays. And when Daniel says the holidays, he doesn't just mean Christmas season. I mean Easter and Christmas and Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, <laughs> their mother is well-renowned as being... Someone who, I guess, withstood a lot of adversity to run a godly household and raise up kids well. So this is, we are getting into the life now. Is there anything we need to say broadly to establish people's interest? Well, the other main thing that I would know is, is as you mentioned earlier, the holiness aspect, which is, from my understanding... And I might be incorrect about this, but that a lot of the teaching that we've had that um, as humans, we're not just doomed for daily sinning and and like eternally unable to be righteous, as we've talked about before, about being perfect. A good portion of our understanding that that is actually possible in this life uh, comes from his movement and his teaching. Uh, is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's a, probably the, I'd probably say that's the number one thing that you would want to take away is the concept of holiness and the pursuit of holiness, as well as the uh, ability to actually achieve holiness in this life. I, I definitely think that's one of the primary things we get out of John Wesley, uh, mm -hmm. his thoughts. Um, just like from a practical nature about his life is that they led like revivals all across Britain and America. And so anytime there's been great revivals that have changed a country or a course of countries in this case, looking at like, how did that happen? And what was, you know, what was behind that move of God is always really helpful for us and interesting. But as far as like his impact on the church, like beliefs wise, holiness of heart and life is what he said. So that's big. The fact that you can have total assurance that you're saved was something he really stood for in his time. The infilling of the Holy Spirit was also a part of that. And some of the like manifestations of the spirit, which is kind of why Pentecostalism eventually came out of that movement. Was the prevailing belief that you could never really be sure if you're going to heaven and you just do your best and hope hope for the best? Yeah. Yeah, that was the prevailing belief in the Church of England for sure at the, at the time. But even though that's not like the official doctrine of a lot of these churches, mm. that's what the like colloquial belief was for sure. Oh, and then one more thing I'll say is the... Calvinist versus Arminian debate, a lot of people say Calvinist versus Wesley and Arminian is what you'll hear sometimes. Mm. So that's positioning Wesley in a pretty major point of that uh, theological divide. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just say before we jump into his life as a thought of connecting him to church history. So in our church history podcast, we didn't quite get up to the Reformation but essentially like a broad like a overview of church before <laughs> <laughs> that's true <laughs> but just a, a brief overview of church history that leads us to who was john wesley is the 
Roman Catholic Church started, there started to be a lot of controversy that Christianity was too works focus. And so the big focus of the Reformation with Luther was a focus on salvation by grace through faith alone. And so you didn't have to do works. It's a gift of grace. And so in some ways, Christianity swung very far in this direction of you don't have to do works. Salvation is a free gift. So with Wesley, he came 100 years later and kind of reintroduced this balance of, yes, it's a free gift of grace, but doing good works as a Christian is also a key aspect of what it means to be a follower of Christ is loving people well and the good works tend to flow out of your love. Um, so I think Wesley is really important just from a broad church history perspective as a corrective to an overcorrection from the Reformation. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it for sure. All right. Well, let me walk through some of the things that we talked about in the class about the life of John Wesley. He's a 1700s character. He was born in 1703 uh, in England, and his father was a pastor, and his mother was Susanna Wesley, and she's a really interesting, important figure that uh, is a good a good person for people to be aware of, I think, because a lot of what he accomplished is uh, largely credited toward her parenting and upbringing. And so she's known as the mother of Methodism. And yeah, just a really interesting character in the story. When you read about Susanna Wesley, you get a lot of interesting stuff about like the home and about like raising children and their rules that they had as a family and her intentionality that she had with all of her kids, which they had like a ton of kids. And so it's really interesting from that like yeah. practical home life situation of being super intentional about raising a godly disciplined family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was really disciplined, really strict and orderly. She would have a specific meeting every week with each child one-on-one. -on -one. Which is, it was like 11 children or something. Uh, a lot of them died as babies. I can't remember how many there were though. Somewhere between, between 10 and 20. Between 10 and 20, that's a big range. Okay, they had 19 children, but nine of them died as infants. It's pretty unique though for a... Christian movement to have a female, you know, they're calling it the mother of Methodism. No, I don't actually, I'm not aware of any others like that, really. I guess you could say Except like the, the Catholics. Mother, the mother Mary. <laughs> yeah, Catholics venerate yeah. Mary. Oh, I know of one. Um, there's like a pretty famous Pentecostal movement that like a woman was the leader. My favorite story about Susanna was uh, one time when her husband Samuel, John's father, was away on church work out of town. And so the assistant pastor was filling in for the preaching in the town. And uh, for whatever reason, he just preached every week on like paying, not being in debt and paying your debts. And there was a lack of like any actual good teaching because he was just preaching these dry sermons every week on the same topic. And so Susanna stepped in to start teaching the people just out of her kitchen. And she started just hosting people on Sunday evenings to teach them about the faith. And it actually got to the point where as many as 200 people were showing up to her house in her kitchen and in her yard to hear her teach on Sunday nights. And it was to the point where more people were coming to her house on Sunday nights than were coming to church on Sunday morning. 
<laughs> and so the assistant pastor was not happy and wrote a letter to her husband about it. And so he wrote to her to tell her to stop doing this. And uh, she writes back and essentially says, um, okay, like I will stop as long as you give me the words for how I should respond on judgment day to why I didn't take advantage of this opportunity to do good before the throne of God, <laughs> to which her husband responded, okay, you can keep doing it. <laughs> so the thing that I think is most significant for Wesley in that story is um, this idea of neglecting an opportunity to do good. Mm-hmm. Like sins of omission. Right. She says, um, send me your positive command in such full and expressed terms as may absolve me from all guilt and punishment for neglecting this opportunity to do good when you and I shall appear before the great and awful throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a direct quote from Susanna's letter to to Samuel. Um, So this idea of neglecting good, I think, ends up affecting Wesley a lot. One of his main themes is always take opportunities to do good to the people around you. So I like that story from his childhood. Um, Another interesting event that happened to him early was the fire. Their home burned down. And uh, this was just, I also just found very interesting. All the children and parents were evacuating the home and they all got safely outside and realized that John Wesley was not there. Realized he was still in his bedroom on the second floor. And so Samuel Wesley, the father, ran back into the house to save him and as he got to the stairwell it crumbled beneath the flames and so he essentially just fell on his knees and offered you know prayed that the lord would take john wesley essentially and uh thankfully some neighbors by standing on each other's shoulders were able to get to his window and pull him out of the house and right as they did so the house collapsed so susanna writes about that as him being, you know, plucked from the fire. And she saw that as like a special thing that God spared him from early death in the flames. But I just thought that was an interesting story. Very dramatic. (laughs) At the age of, I think, around 10 or 11, John was sent to a boarding house to go to school. And uh, just some of the things that he talks about his life at that age, I think, is helpful for us as we consider this theological journey and how his life influenced it. So he talks about as a boy in this stage of his life, his hope for salvation rested upon three things, not being as bad as the other boys, having a kindness towards religion, and then reading the Bible, going to church and praying. And so I I think that's very relatable. Like a lot of people are in that place where they're like, well, if I die today, like at least I'm not as bad as a lot of other people. I'm spiritual, you know, I care about things of religion and I do good works every now and then. And uh, go to church or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I go to church right, occasionally. Yeah, a lot of people, or even regularly. Right. And so that's where John Wesley was. And you'll see as we talk through his life that um, a lot of the value in learning about him is the things that he did wrong and learned along the way. And so even from this early stage, you can see he's processing and learning things about what it actually means to be a Christian. He went to Oxford. Did you guys know that? I did. And that's where he started his like holy club, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
So they had like a holiness club. Yeah. Like a group of students that were like dedicated to this, like really high level of holiness. So something Mm -hmm. we would call today is like a, like some sort of like strict accountability and discipleship group or something like that. Right. Where they would have these rules about fasting and about scripture reading and what else were the main things they did? Yeah. Um, they were called a people of one book, which was kind of a derogatory that they're so interested in the Bible that uh, they don't broaden their horizons enough. Mm-hmm. Right. Which wasn't actually true, but they were made fun of a lot by the other students at Oxford. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's how it is when people get really serious about those sort of disciplines and stuff. People give them mm-hmm. give you a hard time about like being legalistic or being too like rigid about your disciplines Mm -hmm. so that's what was happening to them at at college yeah so this was around uh, 1725 and this is known as wesley's he calls it his spiritual awakening when he first started reading and learning a lot about what it means to be what he called a real christian and that's this focus on a a holy life that emerged at this point. So does that come from a frustration with the through the motions, just sit in the pew and live however type of thing he was seeing? Yeah, I think so. Came from that. And then he was really influenced by reading uh, two people, Taylor and Law, I think are the authors. Um, so he was influenced a lot by how he was reading. And then I think what you're saying, a frustration with nominal Christianity. He also, throughout a lot of his life, was very like fearful of not being right with God and like kind of had this feeling of like, okay, I'm doing what other people are doing, but I don't feel like I'm right with God. Mm -hmm. And so then he was like very scared of that. And so then that like caused him to try to like go like way above what other people did in order to try to prove that he was serious and that he was more devout than other people. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of that was his motivation is because I want to be right with God and I feel like I'm not. I'm not certain. I don't have that assurance that I'm right with God. So I'm going to like do everything I can on my end, hedge my bets kind of to like be sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think it was pretty legalistic at this point. Yeah. That's the idea that I got. Yeah, I think so. And it's so interesting, like the different phases of how he processed salvation and what it meant to be right with God. Like people today still saying like, well, at this point, was he really saved because he believed in Jesus, asked Jesus forgiveness and was like doing all these things, but he didn't have this sense of assurance and like a conviction of the Holy Spirit within him, uh, which comes later on. And so people still talk about like, to what degree was he actually saved at this point? And when he's doing all these holy things and living such a holy life. So um, it definitely brings in a lot of those types of questions. I like this. The book says that they were ridiculed by their classmates who called them Bible moths. <laughs> I like that. And that's what they called them Methodists, right? Was in uh, in college? Because they were so into the method. Yeah. I think that's debated, but... Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, like where that term actually started. Okay, well, that's a legend then. But this is, like we, I think, have potentially covered, this is where the emphasis on inward holiness as the goal of religion began to really formulate in Wesley's mind. So this idea of not just being externally holy, but being inwardly holy and good. So he's uh, percolating into the person that he's going to become. After Oxford, he's ordained as a deacon and then priest in the Anglican Church, which I find interesting in modern times where a lot of Methodists are going back to 
at least around here, a lot of Methodists I know are going mm -hmm. to the Anglican church, which is just kind of interesting because Wesley really serious as an Anglican and yeah, came out of that eventually. Um, though unintentionally, I'll add, he, uh, Methodism was always intended to be just a movement within the Anglican church. He didn't intend to actually start a new denomination. Yeah, just like Martin Luther. Well, basically... And why did that happen? With uh, Wesley? He, yeah, I mean, why why did it become a new family of denominations rather than just being a wing of Anglicanism? Well, they started like having a lot of people come who weren't just Anglican. They were coming from lots of other traditions and denominations as well. And so it kind of became like a para parachurch movement in a way where it was like people from all sorts of denominations will come to the Methodist gatherings in addition to their church. Okay. But then really when they moved to the new world, there wasn't as ready access to church or to the Church of England and Anglicanism especially. It was like, well, what are we going to do about communion? And what are we going to do about church leadership stuff if they can't all get to churches and can't get to communion as much as they need to? And so that's when there was like ordination, which is kind of like, okay, well, we'll ordain some specific people within the Methodist movement who can kind of be leaders and can do communion. It was kind of a necessity based move. Just, yeah, the necessity and the practicality of God moving and the Anglican church slowing, <laughs> slowing it down in a lot of ways because they didn't want anybody preaching unless they're ordained Anglican and they didn't want you preaching anywhere except inside the churches you know, they had these specific rules. And then when the revival started breaking out, people like Wesley would just go preach out in the field. Well, anyway, we can get into some of that. All right. So after Oxford, he became a preacher and preached within the Anglican church around England. Right. And then what was the next main major event? Was it uh, the mission trip that Daniel alluded to earlier? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so he was already ordained and and he had already been part of these accountability groups uh -huh. and everything. Oh, yeah. Because that was when he was yeah. in school. So... That didn't do it for him. Okay, interesting. Right. I, I yeah, so he um, assistant pastored his dad for a while, um, helped at his dad's church, Went ended up going back to Oxford for a while. So he had some time uh, between school and then this call that he felt to go do missions work in Georgia. That's uh, one of the biggest things about his life is this time where he decided to go do missions in Georgia. And he gives two reasons for doing this. What are they? First, he said, the hope of saving my own soul. Daniel. All right. Yeah. Hey, I wasn't so <laughs> off. There you go. He says, I hope to learn the true sense of the gospel of Christ by preaching it to the heathen. Okay. And second, he said that he felt like he could acquire a further degree of holiness in Georgia than in England. Hmm. So really interesting, isn't it, that there's this, like, crisis in Wesley about, like, what he believes, and he, like, fully believes the gospel in his mind, right? But mm -hmm. he feels like there's some something missing, like, spiritually. Something's, like, a mismatch between, like, what he knows to be true, because he, like, fully believes in Jesus, yep. and in the resurrection, and in the forgiveness of sins, and in God Almighty. Like, he believes everything you're supposed to believe, fully. And he's trying to, like, order his life based on it, but he still feels like something's missing, it's not right. It's not, like personal mm. and that drives a lot of his like conflict mm. of faith which is interesting i think i don't know if a lot of people today would be like oh well you're good you know you believe what you're supposed to believe and you're like living a holy life so like that's good mm. but he wasn't satisfied with that because he still felt like there was some like spiritual connection that was missing yeah yeah it's, it's very interesting 
And so we pick up then on his journey to Georgia, one of the most significant moments in his life. Okay, so yeah, on the way over to America, there's this like huge storm, which was a big deal back then. Uh, sailing across the Atlantic was this treacherous. And Wouldn't that be crazy to live in a time where you had to actually sail across the continents? Yeah, I wonder how long that voyage was. But anyway, there's this big storm. And so very real possibility of death when there's a big storm on the sea. John Wesley is terrified for his life. And there's a group of Christians that are called Moravian Christians. uh, And they are like completely not afraid. They're just like at peace. I think they're like singing hymns or something like that. Doesn't seem to be distraught at all. And so I don't remember if Wesley talks to them or if it's just all this internal thought and like wrestling that he goes through where he's like this, like they have something that I don't have basically. Yeah, so I'll read a section of what he writes here. Yeah. And this is from Wesley's journal. He says, I was very uncertain whether I should wake alive and much ashamed of my unwillingness to die. He confesses, I could not but save myself. How is it that thou hast no faith, being still unwilling to die? So like Joel said, he's very distraught by this idea that he's so fearful of death. Mm-hmm. So because of this and because he saw the faith of the Moravians ended up talking to them, and he writes about that as well. He says, A terrible screaming began among the English, the Germans, or Moravians, calmly saying on. I asked one of them afterwards, Was you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, But were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, No, our women and children are not afraid to die. What happened to them? As we know that they influenced John Wesley and that led to this whole Wesleyan movement slash Methodism, uh, Nazarene, etc. How come we don't, it didn't just become the Moravian Church of America or something like that? (laughs) Yeah, well, they did continue to have a lot of influence on him. And actually, because of this interaction, soon after he got to America, he went to meet with one of... Uh, the key leaders in the Moravian movement. His name is uh, August Spangenberg. By the way, just so the listeners are aware, this is all from a book called John Wesley, A Theological Journey by Kenneth J. Collins. So if anybody's curious, that's where these sections from Wesley's journals are coming from. Okay, so deeply impressed by what he saw in the Moravian community, Wesley was emboldened to seek advice regarding his own moral and spiritual condition from one of the leaders, August Spangenberg. Before he would answer, however, Spangenberg posed two questions to Wesley. First, have you the witness within yourself? And second, does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? So Spangenberg jumps straight to just evangelistic answers in Wesley before he discusses advice. So Wesley didn't know quite how to answer this. So Spangenberg continued his questions. He said, do you know Jesus Christ? Wesley paused and said, I know he is the savior of the world. True, Spangenberg replied, but do you know he has saved you? Wesley responded once again, both weak and indecisive. He said, I hope he has died to save me. The Moravian leader then brought matters to a head in a very pastoral way and asked, do you know yourself? Wesley responded, I do. But later he noted in this journal that he feared these were vain words. So like Joel was saying earlier, Wesley's got this deep faith in 
Jesus as the savior of the world, but he's struggling with the personal aspect of actually having a relationship with Jesus and knowing that his that Jesus is his personal savior. Yeah. And you can see some of the like how this wrestling could lead to some conflict with Calvinistic beliefs about who God is, right? Because he says here, like, oh, I hope that he saved me. You know, he he knows that God is the savior of the world, but he hopes that he saved me. Mm-hmm. Where then, like, once Wesley really does, like, have an encounter with God and has this assurance of his salvation, he then goes to believe, like, okay, everybody can have this. It's not just about, like, hoping that I'm one of the ones that God died for. And also that theme of having the witness of the Holy Spirit that you can be sure that you're a child of God. Yeah. And really interestingly enough, he was a ended up essentially failing as a missionary in Georgia. His ministry there collapsed not super long after he'd been there, which... It's not super surprising when somebody's going through like a personal crisis of faith, right? <laughs> <laughs> True. But I think we can take encouragement when these great leaders of the Christian faith, you know, are like struggling and have failures along the way. You know, it's it's never too late for God to use you in a profound way if you've had some failures in ministry or life or whatever. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, like Joel said, largely because of his internal questions going on and his strictness and a few other things, his ministry there just collapsed. And so he ended up returning to England pretty distraught over how it had all taken place and uh, very unsure of what was next for him as a minister. When you say his strictness, is that like he was trying to hold the people to the standard of like more time in the word and more holiness? Well, one of the biggest things that happened is he got in this serious relationship with a woman and never really was able to express his feelings or actually ask her to marry him. And so she ended up marrying somebody else. And then he barred her from communion when she came to church. Even though she hadn't done anything? He didn't allow her to take communion. Because he was jealous? Uh, Yeah, it kind of seems like that. He gave maybe some other reasons uh, regarding like the guy, but he handled it very poorly. Right. And so he ended up, I think, getting sued. Wow. How dramatic. And so there was this legal dispute going on and he just left. That low budget movie I watched, I think, attempted to cover some of that, but I don't remember much about the details. In fact, I was thinking the whole time, maybe this whole thing about some love interest is just for the movie. (laughs) It was a little sad to me because it seemed like she was solid and they really liked each other but he just could never get himself to actually express his feelings for her and but then i think about like would he have become what he did if he got married there he may have just stayed in america or who knows so here's the good ending line so his ministry in georgia collapse and wesley wrote in his journal you'll love this daniel oh boy he says i'm already (laughs) i'm gonna write this down he says and i quote I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Oh, I thought it was save. Oh, come on. (laughs) That's what convert means. (laughs) Wow, yeah. Who did convert him? Let's just jump straight to that part. 
when he gets back to England, there's this, he, he continues to struggle feeling like, okay, so I'm obviously not in a good spot. Like, should I just drop out of ministry because of where I am personally? And so he has this uh, conversation with, um, is it Peter Bowler? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So another Moravian leader that he like talks to about what he should do. And this guy's advice to him is to like continue to preach until he like really, until God moves in him. So he's like, you know, the truth. So like you can continue to preach. Yeah. Preach faith until you have it. Yes. And then preach because you have it. Mm. Oh, preach until you have it and then preach because you have it. Yes. Yeah. So this guy was really stressing the importance of just having genuine faith for repentance, genuine uh, faith in Peter, Jesus and Peter how, was? yeah, Peter Bowler and how that will bring transformation. And uh, specifically the two things he emphasizes, holiness and happiness as being keys to a fruitful faith, uh, which I think is interesting because we tend to not like the word happy anymore. We, or at least for me, I kind of see that as shallow and feel like I, you should always say joyful. Um, but Differences in the old English, I suppose. Uh, I don't know. I'm currently reading a book called The Christian's Secret to a Happy Life. Oh. And it's a Christian classic, and it is awesome. Okay. But I know what you mean, Paul. That's definitely a joyful versus happy was especially like a famous kind of distinction um, probably like 10 years ago. Uh, But honestly, like when you look at the Bible uh, in the Old Testament, I know the same word basically is used for like blessed and happy. Mm. And so a lot of translations translate it blessed to try to avoid that shallow feel. But it's like, yeah, but in Hebrew, they would have just said it either way. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I find that interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. So another thing that that Bowler was telling him is that saving faith could be instantaneous. Um, And this is really interesting to me because basically all of us in America think about salvation as an instantaneous process. Uh, But that was not the common thinking in the Church of England. They saw it more of a process of becoming a Christian. So Wesley was really skeptical of this idea that saving faith could be instantaneous. And so as a good Christian, he goes and studies the Bible. And he writes, basically, to my surprise, all the conversions in the Bible were essentially instantaneous. He says, you know, the only one that was maybe the longest was Paul who had like three, you know, days of yeah, blindness. The scales removed from his eyes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this impacts him so much that within days, he actually ends up preaching saving faith to a man um, in prison who's condemned to the death sentence. And uh, again, like the church in England would not have done this typically. Like for him, it would have been too late. Oh, wow. And yet Wesley's there like in the prison preaching to him. And so Methodists in America will be known as people that would preach uh, to people on the deathbed or people that were preached on the way to be hung. And they were actually made fun of and ridiculed for this. Um, but I think it's a awesome thing that they were preaching to people right up to the last minute of their lives. And that's become pretty standard in modern Protestantism, modern Christianity, at least in America, I assume pretty much everywhere. Yeah, that's one of those things that at the beginning Paul was saying, like the whole church is really affected by Mm -hmm. some of this. That's like definitely one of those things that is just like general Christian belief, basically. Yeah. So the answer to who will save me is Peter Spankenberg. No, that was the other guy. Peter Bowler. Peter Bowler. Peter Bowler. Yeah. No, that's not really the answer because he just kind of guides him on the right path. And then Jesus is the one who saves us. all. Oh, okay. 
Well, so it was the uh, that yeah. good old trusty answer to <laughs> these kind of questions. That's right. I guess you could say Martin Luther because that's the one he reads. That's true. Luther's preference. Oh, yeah, that's something I know about Wesley. At about 9.45. <laughs> We're almost there, but... <laughs> Let's I, get there. I just wanted to say before we get there that... So Wesley, listening to the advice, you know, con- continues to preach faith. And an interesting thing that happens at this time is a lot of the Anglican churches he's preaching in end up telling him, Wesley, preach here no more. They do not want to hear this faith that can save you, you know, that Wesley is preaching. Because why? And so... I mean, what was their con- uh uh, problem with that idea um it was radical i mean it was definitely like radical and different from what they were saying they would probably would argue that it's like you have to um, go through catechism yeah something like that that it's like shallowing the faith or something that brings us to probably the most important moment in wesleyan theology not theology the most important moment in wesley's life which is aldersgate so why don't you give the backstory and then I can read the the famous quote from his journal. He was going to pray with the Moravians. Is that correct? No, it's not the Moravians, actually. Is it? I think it's just a prayer meeting. Yeah. And um, from our perspective, a little unusual that you would, in some kind of a group meeting like this, you would be reading a preface to a book of the Bible, not the scripture itself. Mm-hmm. Luther's preface to Romans. That's right. Then his heart was strangely warmed. It was like 945. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Don't jump the gun. And also he says that he reluctantly went hmm. to the to the prayer meeting, which is interesting. It was like an obligation that he regularly did, but he wasn't feeling it. Something like that. And I just think how often it is that people like reluctantly respond to some call of God and then God ends up really moving in their life that way. We had a youth retreat like a few weeks ago and we did testimonies afterward and probably like six of the students were like, I didn't really want to go on the retreat, but my mom made me or I didn't really want to go on the retreat, but I did anyway, or I wasn't really excited, Mm. but, and then like some way that God really moved in their lives. Mm. It's like, that's really interesting that that happens often. That's cool. So when you're not really feeling it, that doesn't mean you should not go. Okay. That's right. So anyway, this uh, this most famous quote here comes from John Wesley's journal of that day when he like really encountered God. So Paul will just read it because it's really like if you're a part of Wesleyan circles, it's really like iconic. Yeah. And uh, stuff. So, yeah, probably the most famous quote from Wesley. Yeah. So he says, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society well, in Aldersgate. It's more well known than the quote about the Indians. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> oh. Uh, that's disappointing. You didn't even know the quote correctly. Well, I knew the Indians quote correctly. <laughs> no, you didn't. Okay, okay. Let's hear the the actual most famous quote, I guess. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ... I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. We probably didn't hit this as much as we could have at the beginning, but just the importance of the experience of the Christian life. It's 
an emphasis placed on the experiences we have with God and the experience we have with God moving in our life, not just what we believe. And I think that really was what he was wrestling with is, is he had all the right, correct beliefs and even the lifestyle, but he had no experience with Jesus. And now today, some people push back against that because what happens often in church history or just like in lives is people like swing too far to one side or the other. And so some people can swing too far to the experience side and they're just looking for these like cool experiences with God. Kind of like, you know, always chasing the next high. Right. And so like that would be like the negative swing. Mm. But then on the other side, it's this idea that like, oh, experiences with God are just like they're just shallow. And what matters is like your daily like life and what you believe. Like that's the, what matters. Yeah. And so really like in Wesleyan theology, you get the emphasis on both of those things. Mm. Uh, and I think that's really important is to have that emphasis on really experiencing the presence of God in your life and like in a personal in a personal way. Yeah, that's quite interesting, too, because in my context right now with the types of ministries I'm, invo- I'm involved in, I think it's a lack of the experience um, and and a not a surplus, but plenty of the head knowledge, but that kind of a weakness in taking it beyond that or into life a little more. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways that I love the way that our church harvest balances those things is really emphasize like people coming to these conferences that are like a few days that like the goal is really to encounter God and to like experience his presence. Mm. So those are like those impact moments where God can really like encounter people and speak to them and they can experience his presence. But then we have like a super robust discipleship program that takes two to three years to really go through it all. And so that's this long like process of living out the faith. And so having that sort of balance, I think is really, really healthy in your Christian walk. Yeah. Wesley talked a lot about not only how do you become a Christian, but how do you remain a Christian? I think that can be neglected a lot in our culture, but it's so important. So after this moment at Aldersgate, what he describes as one of the main things that came out of this experience was a newfound victory over sin. So before this moment, he would have described his life much like Romans chapter 7, where Paul talks about you know, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. It's this struggle with sin where you don't want to do it, but you're slipping into it, and then you're repenting, and it's this back-and-forth pattern. Um, but after this moment, he was able to find uh, new desires and a consistency over the power of sin. And uh, that'd be my encouragement to anybody listening to this is that there is a grace that God can offer you where he can change your desires and eliminate that constant struggle. doesn't mean there's not going to be temptation, um, but you can experience freedom from the power of sin. And so again, very practical for our walk with God as well. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of where you guys stopped in class? Yeah. I think I remember that being weird to me. I mean, the book I read continues. It is interesting because a lot of the emphasis on John Wesley's life talks about this struggle up to this point to Aldersgate, but most of his impact came after that. Okay. Well, I feel like after this point, a lot of it turns more toward the the specific theology that he starts to implement. Well, did he ever get married? Did he ever have any kids? He did. Both of those things. And he started a revival and a new denomination. Okay. Those are, those are good things. 
We're not. We don't know anything about his kids. No one does. <laughs> like the most important things I want to learn about is how did how did he start a revival and a new and like a successful mm-hmm. movement? You know. Yeah, let's at least touch on some of these things. So, after his elders get experience, he wrote to his brother Charles and told him that he had had this encounter with God and like really had this uh, experience where he knew that he was saved um, for the first time, really. But when he when he wrote to Charles about this experience, Charles Wesley had had a similar experience like the week before oh. where he was like basically had the ex- same thing happen and knew that he had encountered Jesus in like a really real personal way. Yeah. So then they they started preaching. The main thing was like, yeah, the what Paul had mentioned before, like salvation by faith and then assurance of salvation with that witness of the Holy Spirit. And so that was like what really distinguished their preaching. And they continued to have conflicts with the churches where churches didn't want them to preach. So they started doing field preaching or like preaching outside, which was like very looked down upon at the time. And that was like a big wrestle for John Wesley about whether or not it's even okay to do that. Hmm. Um, Yeah. Because it's like the argument would be like if you're field preaching, you're not under the authority of the church. Right. And so is it okay to preach if I'm not under the authority of the church? Right. I don't I don't know the quote exactly, but he has some quote about like that, like resolution that like it's okay, like I need to preach and it's okay to be undignified. Right. Something similar is what David would say. And that's because at this point he's not officially part of the church. Right. I think he still is, but there's definitely like becomes conflict where his ordination is like revoked or like put on suspension or something like that. That's weird. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's because they didn't like the stuff he was preaching, but is the controversy what he was talking about or the fact that he was preaching somewhere that's not a church building? Oh, both. The church building was a big deal. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, Jesus preached like that. Yeah. Here's a quote about this. So he's experiencing field preaching from George Whitfield. He's the one who's kind of demonstrating this for him. Wesley says, I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church. Wow. So that shows you how extreme the view was. But Whitfield persuaded them. They must have really had this culture of like, keep your religion in the church and don't talk about it outside. I think it really had that understanding that you're underneath the authority of the church. Like that was what was really important, I think, is like... Mm. Like it's not the the individual is not over the church. The church is over the individual. And so when you're preaching, if you're in a church doing ministry, then you are under the uh, that authority. Mm-hmm. And you're operating within the proper channels. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Okay. But then like Wesley, you know, the, the Methodists were well known for like preaching to the coal miners and to the people in jail and to all these places that are not people that wouldn't go to church or were like lower class and stuff. And that's one of the reasons like it really exploded among a lot of the common folk, they would do like these preachings outside and go Mm -hmm. to the people rather than just like wait for the people to come into the church. So how did it expand? They, they were part of these prayer groups and like Bible studies. And then he and his brother at least started preaching, but did they just kind of whatever their small groups were started also doing it and it spread like that? I think it really started spreading through this, this field, like outdoor Mm -hmm. preaching. And they wanted to first only John was doing it or they had a group doing it. I think it was just John and Charles to start with, but I'm not sure. Whitfield as well. Yeah, Whitfield was with him a lot. Okay, Um, but he was already doing field preaching before them. He was. He was like a revival speaker, like what we would think of as like a 
speaker that would go around different as a famous preacher and mm. preach out in the fields. But he was not connected to the Anglican church, right? No, but he was connected to Methodism. Right. And so, like we said earlier, like Wesley was, what he was doing was supposed to be in supplement to the Anglican church. They started like trying to, when they had these successful like field preaching sessions and people wanted to respond, then it was, okay, what do we do with these people now? Right. They weren't satisfied with just, okay, these people are responding to what God is saying. And so now go get plugged into your church. If your church like isn't on board with these sorts of like experiencing God's presence in this way or these beliefs. So that's why they started forming small groups, basically. Yeah. So again, all of that was in um, conjunction with the Anglican church. You were supposed to go to church on Sunday and then other times of the week is when they had like Methodist small groups and these different accountability groups in the assemblies. Mm -hmm. So Wesley was really good as a like organizer. He was like a great administrator. Mm -hmm. Um, People actually talked about him not being as good as a preacher as like Whitfield, but he was like super good at the like administrative side. Yeah. Hmm. This is what really sets him apart is that not only were they having these huge meetings where people were receiving Christ, but he created a structure for discipleship to actually help people, like I said before, remain Christians and grow in their faith. So yeah, that is what really started to characterize Methodism where, like Joel is saying, these small groups. And essentially there were three varieties of group meetings. There were what they called societies, which has become essentially our church, like the large group gathering. And then there were class meetings, which would be more like, you know, maybe 10 to 20 couples, families. Like a Sunday school or Bible study. Yeah, yeah. Sunday school or Bible study. And then what he called band groups, which would be a small, what we would call accountability group of, you know, four to six people of the same gender where you're asking serious questions about each other's walk with God. Yeah. So everyone was expected to be in all three of these groups. So if we were doing that today, it would be like Sunday church, Bible study, accountability group. Mm-hmm. Is that where the the kind of um, traditional American system of like Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night comes from? It could be. But one thing that's really interesting is in order to go to the big meeting, the society meeting, Mm -hmm. you had to go to the other. (laughs) Was it the class that you got class meeting or was it both the other ones? Or you you got the certificate. Yeah, you would get like a ticket if you went to your like. Yeah. And that's what got you into the big meeting. So So if you're a new person, you have to start with these small groups. Yeah, you have to go there. Mm -hmm. That's like priority. Which is like opposite of how we think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So a new believer has to start going to a small group, basically. Uh-huh. And then the in the bands, like they did very intentional accountability. And Wesley had these five questions that everybody was asked every week. And um, we're actually, we actually use this in a lot of our accountability groups at Harvest. Oh, nice. Um, I'm, in an, I'm in an accountability group that we use these questions. Okay. What are the they? The same ones that Wesley used. And so they are... What known sins have you committed this week? Okay. What temptations did you face? All right. And how were you delivered from those temptations? So the first one is like, yeah. So the first one is like, where, you know, where did you actually sin? The second Mm -hmm. one is where were you tempted to sin, but didn't. And how did you, how were you delivered from that temptation? Right. was the third question. The fourth is, um, have you done anything that you're not sure if it's a sin or not? And then... The fifth is, is there anything you wish to keep hidden? (laughs) Wow. 
Anything you wish to keep hidden. Yeah. Hmm. Each week you're going through these, and I found just since doing these in my own life, they really do like bring a level of freedom and like a next level of holiness where there's the things in my life beforehand that I was like, well, it's not really a sin. Like I'm not like even like really mentally agreeing with them. Mm -hmm. But when you're weekly having to go through like, how was I delivered from this? Is this like, what about things that I'm not sure if it was a sin or not? Some of these things I'm like, okay, so I, yeah, I didn't like say yes to this sin, but I didn't immediately say no to this sin either. I just like maybe allowed that like negative thought to remain in my brain a little bit. Like I was aware that it was there. I didn't say yes to it. I didn't say no to it. And then like being aware of those things so that next time when it comes, I'm like, okay, I'm going to immediately reject this. Hmm. I feel like the last one would bring up a lot of really nipping your thoughts in the bud in a way of like, okay, I don't know if this is wrong or right, but I don't want to talk about such and such, you know? And so maybe it's Mm -hmm. like, because Mm -hmm. for me, one thing would be kind of like having pessimistic or like negative critical thoughts about things and thinking like, well, of course I don't want to like share that and talk about that because that's kind of like giving credence to something. Mm Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if it's that kind of context, maybe bringing it up and then being able to look at the source of those attitudes. Recently, I was listening to an audiobook about um, William Wilberforce, famous for the slave trade. And he was... It's for ending the slave trade. (laughs) (laughs) Good distinction. Yeah, (laughs) it's a pretty important distinction. He was heavily influenced as a child by Methodism and Methodists because he went to live with an aunt and uncle and they were Methodists. And so he really started to um, know God through this. But when his mother found out that they were taking him to Methodist meetings. She was furious and ended up taking him home immediately and cutting off his contact with the aunt and uncle. Um, and I just thought that was an interesting window into this time period where a lot of the high class society saw Methodism as like the thing that the poor and uneducated do. Mm. And they're enthusiastic about religion and they're, you know, they're crazy about religion and not well balanced, you know, and just seeing religion as a small part of your life. But, you know, there's so much more to life than church and religion. It's just something we do on Sundays. Anyway, that just helped me to really see the way that this movement was affecting society and how it sought to influence every aspect of your life. Yeah, that word enthusiasm was used negatively toward them. They were enthusiastic. Yeah, Wesley got called that a lot. Which means like fanatics, I guess. Yeah, like a fanatic, like what we'd say, like a fanatic. Yeah. In a lot of ways, like Methodism was like the Pentecostalism of the day, where like people, a lot, some people of like mainstream were like, oh, they're a little bit, they're out there, you know, mm-hmm. they like do some crazy things or whatever. I remember hearing about this, like a exchange between John Wesley and his, and his brother Charles, where they were both like overcome with the Holy Spirit and we're just like laughing uncontrollably. Like they had these like fits of laughter. There were like these different manifestations of the spirit that we would call pretty like Pentecostal, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so they were very like concerned about it being so like weird, but it was like, they were still okay with it because it was like, well, we're not trying to, you know, put on any airs or anything. It just like happened, but they both kind of like wrestled with this. It's funny. Cause it's like these, Oxford guys who don't seem like fanatics and then they have these like Pentecostal experiences. (laughs) Also, another fun, interesting point is um, Wesley's most 
popular book during his lifetime was a book on health. Hmm. Physical health. Physical health. So it was like the home remedies type of book. Okay. So he wrote a lot about how to take care of yourself and how to treat different ailments and illnesses with like home remedies type thing. Oh. And that was his most famous work during his lifetime. Some people talk about that as just like he was very much about like holistic approach to their life to life as well. Like he wanted people to be healthy people and thought that that was important for the like Christians to focus on being healthy and helping people not be sick and stuff like that. Um, Okay, so he wrote a lot during his life. Well, most of his writing, he journaled a ton. Okay, we have like tons of volumes of John Wesley's journals. And so we get a lot about his life and his beliefs from his journals. He wrote sermons. Obviously, he was a preacher and he like wrote his sermons like word for word. So we have a lot of his sermons Mm -hmm. and his sermons. Once Methodism grew and he couldn't do like obviously all the preaching and there was new churches and stuff. His sermons were distributed to other preachers. So they would preach John Wesley's sermons. You think today about a lot of churches that are expanding, doing like satellite campuses. So like the same preacher can be the one preaching. That's kind of like what the heart was. Mm -hmm. Like we want the same teaching in all these different communities. And so we're going to use the same sermons. And then he wrote letters, but he didn't write like theological books. Yeah. The sermons are really good, though. We'll we'll touch on some of the specific content of those if we do an episode on his theology. Yeah, it's the older English, but man, a lot of them are really, really good stuff. Yeah. So a couple weeks ago, I did a sermon about being lukewarm as a follower of Jesus for the youth, mm. and so I actually listened to John Wesley's sermon called "The Almost Christian." <laughs> yeah, in that sermon, he talks about basically these very moral people who believe the Bible but aren't really like all in. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, lots of material there that you can still pull from mm-hmm. and they're all on YouTube. If you just want to listen to them, I find them hard to absorb from listening. Yeah. It's definitely easier to read. I have to read them real slow to really, um, get, <laughs> get what he's saying. Cause it's, it's pretty dense, but really good stuff. Let me think if I'm, we're missing anything important. I mean, there's a lot about his life, obviously that we haven't touched on. Uh, he did get married, um, and had children. His marriage was actually pretty like difficult. Where they like had a lot of like kind of conflict, it seemed like. Hmm. And um, he was gone a lot, but felt kind of like tied down, I think. Um, yeah. So that was kind of like a low light of his life was the romantic side because he had this issue that Paul talked about in Georgia. And then once he did get married, there was like continued issues with it. Yeah. He was really too committed to the ministry to get married. Uh, mm-hmm. What Dr. Collins was saying is he really should not have gotten married. He should have been like the Apostle Paul and just, you know, embraced celibacy, focused on the ministry. Yeah. But he got married and then he's gone, all, you know, all the time preaching and leading this revival. And so his wife felt very, very neglected. So it's a, it was a really sad marriage. And like Joel said, one of the real low points of his life. And people actually, uh, some people have refused to listen or, you know, take any of his theology into account because of how bad his marriage was and how, you know, he failed in that regard. But uh, of course, that's silly to judge somebody's life on their mistakes or discount. Yeah, it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, another thing that he wrote, he didn't write a commentary, but he did like make personal notes on the Bible. And most of those are available. So like hmm. most any verse or like chapter in the Bible, you can find John Wesley's notes on them. There's a lot of interesting biblical like insight there. 
So he just kept doing the ministry and preaching and everything and until the end, or did he eventually retire? And no, he kept he kept doing ministry basically to the very end. And at the you know by the end, he had like ordained some like bishops to go to America because the Methodism was growing over there so much they needed leadership. Yeah. And so even though he was like very reluctant to try to like do a denomination, it was kind of like by his own choice that he yeah endorsement. Asbury and Coke were the first two like leaders in America that he had ordained. So it was like pretty firmly a new denomination by the time he died. And death was a big deal for the West for the Methodists as well. This concept of the process of death being like a sanctifying experience. Mm-hmm. What I can recall during John Wesley's death, there was definitely like a lot of people around praying and he was very much like aware of like going into the presence of God. Hmm. That's cool. Kind of ideal. Yeah. Yeah, they made a point about how the the Methodists die well. And uh, on his deathbed, he cried out, the best of all, God is with us. And uh, the book says the dying leader lingered throughout the night, often repeating the lines from a hymn, I'll praise, I'll praise. And the following morning, March 2nd, Wesley uttered his last words, farewell. And he died without a struggle or a groan at about 10 a.m. On that day, March morning, 1791, had died one of England's greatest saints. There you go. It says uh, in this one, my book. Yes. uh, At the time of his death, there were nearly 300 preachers, Methodist preachers in Britain alone, and over 70,000 members. So, yeah, incredible influence, both in conversions, but also in structure of helping people remain a Christian. We mentioned just briefly that Wesley had a lot of interaction with George Whitfield, who is a super famous revivalist preacher, and they differed greatly on the issue of predestination. So they got into disputes over that and ended up not working together because of their disagreement on predestination. Wow. But later in life, George Whitfield was asked by someone, Mr. Whitfield, do you think that we will see John Wesley in heaven? To which George Whitfield answered, no, I'm afraid we won't see John Wesley in heaven because Mr. Wesley will be so close to the throne of God that we won't be able to get to him. It's very gracious. So they, they ended uh, with mutual respect. And uh, I think that speaks to how influential John Wesley was at the time. Yeah. They had reconciliation um, where there's a famous quote by Wesley, I think, who says basically is your... If your heart is as mine, then lend me your hand, which was really saying we have much more in common and our passion is the same. So the disagreement is less important so we can work together. And then um, John Wesley ended up preaching at Whitfield's funeral. Oh, so Whitfield died first. He did. Yes. Okay. Based on the quote that Paul just told us, I assumed it was the other way around. There's a quote um, about Wesley that I quite like, too. All right, let's hear it. I was George said I convert the Indians, but who will convert me? And the answer, Peter, no, Jesus. Peter. <laughs> All right, we'll end on that. Good stuff, guys. If you've enjoyed this recording of the Theology Podcast, tune in next time when we discuss the theology of John Wesley. And you can see how... Someone's life affects their theology. If you didn't enjoy this episode, then probably the next one will be different and you're going to really like that one. That's so true. So join us again. 
Provenient grace. Justification. Ooh. Regeneration. The new birth. Initial sanctification. What do these terms mean? Tune in next time. Also next time, what you should have said is, trouble brewing as the three siblings <laughs> disagree. What? I can't believe you would say that. Will the Sigler's bond survive? Tune in next time as they talk about Wesley's theology. <laughs> and tune in next, next time to see... Daniel, convert the Indians. But oh, who will save him? Wow, that's ambitious. How am I going to get to them even?